I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. If you're too early, it comes out of the gate and tends to disappoint. If you're too late, you've missed the boat. So it's really around imagining what you'd like to have happen, and as soon as you see a technology you think could fulfill that, making sure around the timing of when you release the product. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Welcome to another episode of Scaling Up, and today I think we are telling one of the most under-the-radar growth stories of the world. Many listeners would not have heard of Prometicus, nor its low-profile and humble CEO and founder, Dr. Sam Hubert, which is funny, given that the business started in 1983 and has a current market capitalization of over $6.5 billion. This is a story of patience, perseverance, and persistence. It's a story that should be screamed from the rooftops. There is some ground to cover for sure, because in 1983, for context, the IBM personal computer had not even made its way to Australia. There was no venture capital community. And yet here we are, almost 40 years later, lauding what many assume is an overnight success story. Prometicus has become a leading software solution for radiologists to help manage their practice, from scheduling or billing patients to ensuring great clinical outcomes, be it viewing scans, on location, in clinic, or on the mobile. Think of it almost as a clinician's operating system, a cross between a CRM, a practice management software, and data visualisation bespoke for the needs of radiologists. Sam is an absolute gentleman, full of sage advice and views, and all the while delivering them with an egoless charm that's just so genuine. Settle in, because this really is a story not to be missed. If you're listening to this through Spotify, there's a great new social feature that allows you to participate in the conversation, as well as taking a poll that is relevant to this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback so this podcast can continue to improve. As always, the TDM socials are a great place to stay up to date with all the news and views, and the links are in the show notes. And you can always get in touch with me on Twitter, at Eddie Cowan. Sam, I must admit, this is the first time I've interviewed a CEO and founder of a 40-year-old business. We're going to have to wind back the clock to 1983. Bob Hawke was still Prime Minister. Kim Hughes was captain of the Australian cricket team. They'd just been in England 2-1. This is a, a different time. But maybe the best way to tell the Prometicus story is just to walk through the timeline. And, and let's do some time travel. Back to 1983, you were a general practitioner Tell me about starting a software company. Well, Anthony and I had met a few years earlier at a wine tasting of all things. We're both uh, very keen wine collectors and have maintained that passion. And we had become friendly and I was uh, recently out of medical school, set up my own practice. Anthony was working as an analyst programmer for a, a large multinational and I knew nothing about computers and I approached Anthony looking to buy one thinking, look, it's going to be the new form of literacy. And after a whole lot of there and back where he was never happy with anything that I put forward, I one day got frustrated and I said, look, we should go into business. And 
you know, had these great ideas about, you know, doctors need computers and, you know, we could get... And he thought I was crazy and knowing what I know today he was most probably right. But back then I had no idea and uh, eventually convinced him and we started. And as you say, we in incorporated early in 1983 and then the journey started from there. But we've always been in solely healthcare, IT and healthcare. We haven't gone outside the medical profession. And what the start of an incredible journey it's been. It's one of Australia's great and sadly largely untold growth stories. I, I hope the next hour or so can fix that. Can you give a sense of the ecosystem in 1983? I mean, to my mind, IBM may have just brought out their personal computer. Maybe it was a year either side, but there was no venture capital. That ecosystem didn't exist in Australia. You were self-funded. Can you give a sense of the times? Yeah, and you've pretty much summed it up. Had the IBM PC been available, I'm, this most probably wouldn't have happened. The PC came out just after we started. And the world was very different. No VC funding, as you said, but more importantly, trying to develop computer programs was incredibly expensive. There was no internet. And all the compilers and things that you needed were really designed for massive businesses. So, you know, a COBOL compiler could have been $200,000. Back then, that was, you know, close on a million dollars. So we had to find a way that uh, we could get access to those tools without having to pay for them. And we were fortunate enough that the world's second largest computer company, Digital Equipment Corp, or DEC, had won this large New South Wales tender for their health department and were looking at companies that could provide software for the medical industry. And look, we just had a design. We didn't even have the software. But after about nine months of intense negotiations, we were able to make a deal with DEC where we had access to all the tools and their mainframe computers at no cost. So that was, you know, at least a million dollars that we saved. Plus, we committed to developing the software for their equipment, and that was a very successful partnership. So it basically meant we could fund it ourselves without going into debt, and uh, that was really one of the key things we've done over the 40 years. It's incredible insight, as you say. Being debt-free has given such optionality in the business, but we'll come to that. Can you give a sense of what the product looked like and, and what you were trying to achieve and who you were trying to cater for with that sort of version 1.0? Yeah, look, at that stage, computers didn't have a graphical user interface or a mouse. That, that came later. And so really it was all just character cell terminals and it was all around billing. So doctors either literally had a shoebox, so they had their accounts in a shoebox, or they used a system called Kalamazoo, which... Look, it was pretty archaic, and so it was all around billing, certainly for the first few years. My practice was the first practice to use the product, so we were the alpha-beta trial site. And then, um, you know, we sold to a range of GPs and specialists, and then eventually, you know, by about 1986-87, moved into radiology, simply because they needed more computing. They had multiple receptionists at their front desk. They had multiple uh, practices. And so it was a bigger deal doing radiology and that became our mainstay after that. I love the idea of solving, in your case, for yourself and understanding the needs of doctors and, and becoming this practice management system or operating system, as you will, for, for radiologists and, and what that has enabled you to layer on over the years. Let's fast forward a, a little bit to 2000, well, not just a little bit, we'll, we'll fast forward 15 years, but the business has been ticking along, you've been growing, you've self-funded, you're in fact paying dividends, you've been profitable since day one. Listing in 2000, and for those 
old enough to remember what happened in 2000, trying to list a business in the, in the middle of a, a tech crash. I'm sure there's some key insights you'd love to share uh, as to that transformation from private to public. Yeah, look, it was incredibly ironic. Uh, we saw there was this big rush of the internet in 1999 and we thought, how much is a share in Prometicus worth? Anything from nothing to a lot or in between? And we thought, look, it would put us on the radar, it would give us an ability to retain staff, even though we only, only had a handful at that stage. So we made all our plans and, um, you know, we had the endorsement of JB Weir, the, then the Blue Blood Brokers in Melbourne, and uh, everything was all set. My family and I went away on a weekend, the kids were young, and I remember waking up to Jim Whaley on Sunday morning and on Sunday with his booming voice going, Dow and Nasdaq in turmoil, world markets decline, and I thought, what? Wake up, Sam. It's a nightmare. But as it turned out, it was true. Tech wreck occurred just the weekend before we were announcing our IPO back in March. And we just thought, oh, no, what awful timing. This is going to take years. But thankfully, a few months later, JB Weir recontacted us and we listed successfully in October of 2020. But back in March, we thought all this work was going to be for nothing. But thankfully, it wasn't. And the listing was unusual in that I think only two or three companies had IPO'd before us and their IPOs had not gone well. They hadn't traded for an hour or two after opening and then, you know, shares sort of traded under listing at least. Ours, thankfully, was a vibrant and positive opening, so we were pleased with that. And are there any other reflections of those early months of being a public company, just the transition for many companies, particularly in, in small and micro-cap land, can be hard, the systems and processes might not be as streamlined as they might needed to have been to actually deal with the, the rigour of being a public market company? Yeah, look, it's definitely a step up. There's no question in terms of governance. We had a, you know, we had a fabulous chairman, Mel Ward. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2010, but, you know, he had a lot of business experience. He was the CEO of Telecom that then became Telstra. He was on many boards, plus also very active in the arts and charitable fields. So we had really good guidance and that helped a lot. We had a strong independent board. Look, it's a learning curve. So much work to get to that listing or IPO, you know, the due diligence and the groundwork. And I remember things where they asked me, well, how do we know you're a doctor? You have to show us your medical certificate. And I thought, that's crazy. Till a year later, another public company, the CEO had to resign or retire because he purported to be something that he wasn't. So then I, I then understood it. But look, it, it's a step up in governance. It's all part and parcel of what we do every day now, but then it was a change. And today, if you were listing, it'd be even bigger because of the broader governance requirements. We're going to come back to your life as a public company because it's been a hell of a journey, to say the very least, but we're going to keep moving along the timeline. There was another big event, 2008, 2009, something called the GFC. But in many ways, having the balance sheet strength that you had debt-free, cash on the balance sheet enabled you to be flexible, enabled you to be hungry in many ways to potentially acquire a business. And, and what you did from a capital allocation point of view during this time period, in fact, probably on reflection, made the company. Mm. Look, it's interesting how people view a balance sheet and how it can change very quickly. Pre-GFC, people would have thought our balance sheet was, quote, lazy. We had retained earnings, no debt, you're not using the money enough. And the minute GFC hit, the exact same balance sheet became very strong. So, 
you know, it, it really depends through, you know, which prism you look at it. But, yeah, it certainly paid huge dividends for us. We'd been looking for an acquisition for about two years, 18 months to two years. We'd had advisors, KPMG, we had on board. And we came close to one or two opportunities, but for various reasons, um, they didn't get consummated. And then right in the depths when we thought, well, will we ever find anything? We were in Chicago for the big RSNA, which actually is on this coming weekend this year. And we were at drinks for a, a company that does voice recognition. And we met the CEO of Visage. And they were pretty much locked and loaded to be sold to one of their competitors, due diligence done just settlement was, you know, waiting a few days out and somehow that fell over and we stepped in and because we had cash and no debt and we were able to consummate the whole deal in six weeks, including, you know, settling the transaction. So, yeah, that, that balance sheet really helped. For the uninitiated, Sam, maybe can you give some colour as to what Visage as a product allowed you to do? Yeah, look, when we first saw it, we almost walked past it because most of radiology was largely what they call a PACS, which is the digital imaging system that allowed radiologists to diagnose on screen. Most of that was 2D. So, you know, chest, hands, CT, axial slices, all 2D. And then people started to get advanced technologies that could make some of the 2D into 3D, in particular CT scanning. And Visage was like that. It was an appliance that sat on top of a 2D system. And so it would address, in those days, I would say about only 5% of what a radiologist would do, unless they're hyper-specialised. And so one of the things we did look at when we bought them was this technology. How could they do these large files, visualise these massive files so quickly and have all the tools to manipulate the data in 2D and 3D? And I said to them, look, can we go back and actually put in things like, can we look at a chest X-ray? And they said, yes, we've developed the technology to stream the pixels for 2D as, as well as create 3D. And I think that was the big game changer, that we were able to, in one desktop, do anything from a basic chest X-ray all the way through to tracing coronary vessels in a cardiac CT. And to this day, we think we're the only company still that is able to do that within one product set. So... When we first found it, it was a niche specialty product. We were able to expand what it did to cover the full gamut or spectrum of what a radiologist needed. And I think that was a fundamental part of our success going forward. That's great, Cullen. Of course, as you've layered on different functionality that's included mobile and, and on the go and radiologists can now you know diagnose while they're on their super yachts I guess. <laughs> yeah it's not just for radiologists but if you're an orthopedic surgeon and um, you get rung up and it's a child that's fallen off a monkey bar and broken an arm and the mother wants to know well does it need to be operated you can just look at it on your phone or iPad if you're in the ward or at home and just go no all it needs is a plaster and come and see me in three weeks so you know, it applies all the way through the uh, chain of healthcare, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's certainly made a difference. I can't imagine the shareholder value that has been created from a five million dollar acquisition. Visage at that time was loss making for the Nasdaq listed Mercury Computer Systems. You came in, integrated it with your operating system. They were providing the ability to link images into this process. When you're dealing with radiologists, this was driving huge utility for them. Can you discuss what that did for your product? 
it seems simple now in retrospect, but the first few years were very difficult. I uh, was instrumental in the Visage acquisition, but had stepped back as operational CEO. And we were losing about $2 million plus a year. So when we acquired the business, we acquired things that were either very good or actually really not up to scratch. And what was really good was the original technology platform had been developed by two PhD guys out of Berlin. They're still with us. Most of that team is still with us. One's our global CTO, one's our head of development. That was the excellent piece, the technology and the platform. The US sales and marketing group were really not up to par. And I think also the way the product was positioned, it was positioned as an add-on to a 2D system, which was how it was normally done in those days. So I came back in 2010, literally blowing up the US organisation, keeping two people and rebuilding from there. And those two people are still with us. And then um, repositioning the product as the whole doctor's desktop rather than just a niche 3D, 4D part of it. I think they were the two things that set us on. But look, it took a number of years. We were in the trenches, but thankfully uh, we were able to turn it around and, you know, we're in a terrific place with it now. One of the key call-outs that I'm hearing is those cultural synergies. Not always when you acquire a business can you extract great talent, but in in your case it sounds as though you got some of the best in the business and, and they're still with you that speaks to the culture and the business that you've built around them. Again, like everything, it took work. I remember listening to the presentation they gave us, which was on a like a WebEx, and uh, Malta Westerhoff, our CTO, must have thought, what, Melbourne, Australia? Next it'll be Antarctica and then we fall off the earth. These, these guys are so far away. But they'd had difficulty. You know, they'd been promised a lot of opportunity in the US that never really eventuated. So they were a bit wary of company coming in and saying well we're going to make it right but as I said we were able to work together and it's you know it's been a terrific partnership and we're very pleased with where we landed. As it turned out it's been well worth their time. 2013 another inflection point as we're trying to tell this story that the products come together more layers to that you're you're driving utility to the radiologist and the industry at large. First big deal 2014 I think it was a 20 million dollar deal at the time, it was large view to a large US health network. This must have been a pivotal point in time. And just to give some context, this is 30 years uh, since inception. You know, there was a few major inflection points, the deal with DEC, the IPO in 2000, clearly buying Visage in 2009, and then, you're right, Sutter Health in 2014. What most people don't know is originally they had said thanks but no thanks and had chosen another but then found out that the other company couldn't deliver on what they said they were going to and then re-approached us but even then we were an unknown we competed against 29 other companies at the starting line people even wondered why we were even there yet alone that we'd even get down the process and when we won it two of the incumbents which were both very large multinationals who I won't name but they basically said, well, don't worry, we'll be back. You guys won't, you, you just don't have a clue. You're not going to be able to put this thing in. And thankfully, we uh, we proved them wrong and the rest is history. But yes, yeah, Sutter was a huge turning point for us. Still good clients of ours today. It speaks to the quality of the product that such a huge client, almost 10 years later, it's so sticky, you're driving huge utility for them. 
as you called out, this was David and Goliath. I know you won't name them, but to my mind, it's sort of GE and Philips and Siemens. These are huge global businesses and little Prometicus at the time from Melbourne, Australia, winning a contract that changed the course in many ways of the direction of your business. Can you give a sense of what it's like selling into these large hospital networks in the US for those that are familiar with enterprise sales that they can take a long time hospitals are a different beast doctors hate a change of workflow there's patient outcomes that they're trying to optimize for really can be an absolute grind yeah look i think there are a few things one you're right they are large complex and often conservative organizations i think the industry had been promised a lot in the late 90s early 2000s when it transitioned from hard copy or film-based reporting to screen-based reporting and a lot of that promise never really materialised. So coming in and saying, look, we're going to make material ROI and change and value creation pretty much fell on deaf ears in the beginning. But when you go more towards the academic end of the spectrum, the radiologists have a lot more say and they could see the difference. They couldn't understand all of the technology but they got the clinical difference. And so bit by bit, as we got client after client and could prove, A, it works, B, it scales, and C, we could actually implement it without this sort of two-year transition period that others had, you know, was routine in the industry. I think that really helped. Being a doctor makes a big difference because I understand what they're looking for and I think, uh, you know, we can show that we understand and we get what it is. So, look, it took a while, and you're right, some of the groups we've been speaking to for five-plus years, on and off, and then one day they just say, right, (laughs) process has started, and then, you know, within six months you you get to uh, vendor of choice and then a multi-month period of contracting. So it's not uncommon for the big ones to be multiple years before we actually get to that end point. Something that you touched on there, the academic endpoint, and, and often for these sales into hospital networks, you need key opinion leaders, you need mountains of research. And one thing that comes to mind that you've done really strategically and thoroughly is partner with universities in the States. And so not only do they have these large hospitals often attached to them, but they're large research organisations and also the next generation of doctors being trained on your software. It seems like a, a great way to build a competitive advantage. We actually cut across multiple markets, and you're right, in the sort of tier one academics, as we call them, there's usually a a survey or a poll by US News every year, and they name the top 20. They're pretty much always academics, and we do nine of them. And we're very proud of that, because it's not just the size of them, because they're not always the biggest hospitals in the US, but the clinical demands they have of a product you know, right at that pointy end, because these are the leaders in the industry. But then having said that, as you mentioned, Sutter was one of our first. We had a very large client in Mercia based out of St. Louis. And if you look at our recent sales, three out of the six and then two of the biggest we've ever made are in this non-academic or IDN space. So the ROI applies across the spectrum, but certainly our ability to gain those tier one academics uh, certainly put us up there in lights because people just know of them. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. 
I guess the joy of your business is they're not huge sales team. I'm sure you could probably count on one hand the amount of sales executives you've got on the ground in the States. We have three, and if you count me for a fraction, three and a bit, how big a fraction you think I might be. And people say, well, if you had three and you're successful, why don't you have 30? The market doesn't work like that. It's not a land grab like some of the internet-based businesses you hear about today. There's nothing that forces a client to change their system. There's not like some tax ruling or, in the case of the electronic health record, there was a massive rebate as part of Obamacare, but it was time-limited. So it compressed the sales cycle in that market down to a few years. Nothing like that in ours. And um, the other thing is we found that what the large companies were doing, what I call sort of breaking up the country in these small areas, giving a guy a briefcase and saying knock on every door, that just wouldn't work for us. So we think we're addressing most of the opportunities that come our way. In fact, we sure we are. And we think, yes, we'll get more people, but we're not going to go from 3 to 30. It will be incremental. Most of our leads come directly from reference from existing customers. So they're already pre-qualified, which is, makes it that much easier. And, um, yeah, we, we think that that model really suits us and is key to our success. And in terms of driving shareholder value, we talked about inflection points 2013 since then, I think if you were a shareholder, invested $1, you'd end up with 60 in your pocket. So it's fair to say that shareholders that have been on this journey with you and shared your long-term view have done very well. It leads me to talk about technology and innovation that you've been at the cutting edge of. And a few things that I've heard already, there's been a, in your time as a business transition from physical photos to digital, you called out 2D to 3D desktop to mobile and of course now on-premises to the cloud and so you've not just had to deal with the innovation around you but you've probably had to see around corners and and navigate it before it's actually come. How have you thought about navigating these technological changes around you? Well I think a lot of it's got to do with trying to work out what's next even if there's not a way to get there. <laughs> so Mobile was one before all the smartphones. Clearly, you know, not everybody's anchored to a, a screen all day, every day. You know, people are in the ward seeing patients and they don't have a screen with them. So seeing around the corner a little in, in terms of what ideally would be the case and then looking at the technologies when they come out. And I think the important thing there is all around timing. If you're too early, it sort of comes out of the gate and tends to disappoint. If you're too late, you've missed the boat. So it's really around imagining what you'd like to have happen and as soon as you see a technology you think could fulfil that, making sure around the timing of when you release the product. You talk about what's next and there's a lot of, I guess, hot chatter in the world around AI and its use in not only imaging but medical profession more widely. To my mind, particularly in the US, there's this huge sort of tailwind around personalization of healthcare and this democratization. I mean, their healthcare system is a bit of a mess at the best of times, but also this consumerization of, of the consumer or the those that are receiving healthcare really being able to personalize the solutions. How's ProMedicus thinking about getting ahead of this? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. And it, two of the things we're showing literally at the end of this week are at opposite ends of that spectrum. One is on the diagnostic side where we've, uh, in our AGM, we showed a few slides of a research project we've been doing with a 
paediatric neuroradiologist at Yale, who's an authority, US authority. And one of the problems they have is multiple tumours of the head of children. And depending on the type, the prognosis is either six months or they can live an almost normal life. And some of these tumours are embedded deeply in the brain. So yes, you can biopsy them, but it's not without risk. So we're looking at a way of being able to see on MRI more than just how big the tumour is. We're able to segment it. We're able to actually work out the different consistency of the tissue because the tumours you know, have a harder core and softer on the outside. And also some of the molecular structure that you see in radiomics. So we've been able to extrapolate that and do more on the diagnostic side, which will then lead to a more personalised treatment plan for each of these uh, unfortunate children that have these tumours. Then if we wind back completely on the consumer side, we're actually showing a project that we've piloted with NYU Langone, where you actually get a video report. And the reason for that is a lot of patients, you know, the doctors tell them you've torn the capsule of your shoulder. And if you look at an MRI, it just looks like a grey and white and black fuzzy picture. Whereas this shows the MRI with a radiologist pointing out this is the normal shoulder capsule and here's yours and here's the tear and it's all on a video and the videos are one minute. So they're really incredibly well accepted, not only by the patients but by the referring clinicians. They've put out over a thousand of them in the initial pilot and that's now getting embedded into our newest release of Visage so that the patient can have a much better view and understanding of what's actually wrong on the x-rays rather than just being told it was a tear of your shoulder. Incredible. Who would have thought that sometime in the future Promedicus would have a consumer-facing app that you might log into and see where all your scans and, and have a general database of, of videos as you talk about? Yeah, well, look, it's, it's something similar. Look, a lot of the uh, hospitals have an electronic health record that has a patient portal, but this dovetails into the imaging section of that portal. So it just makes it a lot more understandable, a lot more personal and a lot more targeted to the patient and their particular um, issue at the time they have the X-ray or MR. It's fascinating to think that a, a business as mature in many ways that Promedicus is has such an opportunity ahead of it. It almost feels like Act 3 and Act 4, given the rate of change in technology in the world, the runway and, and the possibilities are almost endless. Well, certainly with AI, as you mentioned, I think there's talk about AI in every single industry, but healthcare is ideally suited. And within healthcare, diagnostic or healthcare imaging is, is most probably the biggest subset. And I think the recent stats are of FDA cleared AI algorithms in healthcare, uh, 70%, roughly 70% are in the imaging field. So look, we think it's going to open up huge possibilities. It's emerging. Uh, we think the possibilities will not only be just as a second set of eyes, that there'll be things where AI will be able to show you things that you can't see with the naked eye. And that's going to be incredibly exciting as well. So there, there are a whole lot of uses for it. And clearly, we're looking to tap into as many of those as we can. Strap your boots on, you might be running this company for another 50 years just yet. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> One of the great things that comes to mind of having been at the helm of a business that's seen such a growth journey is dealing with investors, right, from after 2000 as a micro cap now to an ASX 200 company. 
What have been the basic principles that you've applied when talking to investors from an investor relations point of view? There are a few. Uh, consistency in the messages, number one. Making sure that you are conservative in what you say, number two. In other words, don't set an expectation that you can't meet or that you're not sure you're going to meet because, you know, they write it down and then that's banked, now what do you do? We've seen that when people ask us about our pipeline, for instance. We have to be very careful what we both say and don't say to make sure that we portray it as we see it without giving away material things that are confidential between us and clients. So it's a delicate balance. But I think being consistent in the message and people being able to see, you know, release on release, half on half, that message panning out. Now, look, there are always going to be bumps in the road. We had ours way back in about 2006, 2007, but, you know, as long as you continue on that journey and are consistent, I think they're the main things. It's a great call out. Was there any frustration on your behalf in those years after as you saw momentum operationally building in the business that wasn't necessarily reflected in the share price? I don't think it was really frustration. We understood it. We, uh, we had lost the confidence of the market. We'd, you know, fallen off our perch and under the radar a bit. As you'll see from our corporate history, I came back in 2010 and, um, you know, it was hard yards. Our then chairman, Peter Kempen, who knew the company well because he was at Ernst & Young and had managed our IPO for us, he came back. Uh, our then chairman, Mel Ward, who knew Peter well, was already unwell. And so we did that transition and, you know, we had to roll up our sleeves and it was tough and we... I was actually very thankful that one of our biggest shareholders, when I met them, I basically said, look, I need some time. I've just got back. They said, how long do you need? I told them and they said, all right, you got it. And they were true to their word and it worked for them and for us because as the share price went up, they were able to sort of sell down some of their holding at you know, a reasonable margin over what they bought it. But you know, for a while there, it looked like they'd be underwater forever. So... Look, I think we were lucky we had the patience of, of some of the bigger investors and um, I realised it would take more than just one or two wins for that to turn around because they just see it as maybe another spike. But thankfully, um, you know, we got to a point where we were out of that and it's been a lot better for us since. That it has. It's a great case study in having long-term supportive shareholders and having that base be able to ride the bumps with you and as partners share in the upside. It's interesting, our AGM in the last two years, including the one just the other day, was virtual. So before then, it was not uncommon to see the same group of faces uh, year in, year out. And, uh, you know, it's actually very encouraging. And a number of them that I've met, or even those that I haven't, would often write to us telling us, you know, they've been able to use the shares to buy a deposit on a house for a daughter or other great news stories like that. So, yeah, it's made it all worthwhile. Of course... The two biggest shareholders are you over time and your co-founder. But in Australia, it can be a slightly convoluted process of trying to sell shares. And you haven't sold many over the years, but you're well within your rights to having created so much value and, and having essentially most of your net wealth tied up in one asset. Do you have a view as to whether Australia should potentially change the system around founder settle downs because at the moment the market sees it as a, as a smoke signal often. There's no easy or 
frictionless way, even buying shares for insiders can be hard. So can you give a sense of where you think Australia could do better from a, a regulatory point of view? There's been a fair amount of talk recently about the US-based system, which I think is actually quite a good system where the founders release an intention over a period of time and it doesn't come as some sort of shock to the system because you're right, you're pretty much damned if you do and damned if you don't. And even if you sell down just a small amount and retain a huge percentage of your holding, people get incredibly nervous you know, as I said, I, I don't think there's one easy answer to this, but I think a system that maybe is a little bit broader based and, and heralds to the market in advance of an intention most probably would be better tolerated because people would say, OK, I get it, they've told us, and, you know, it's within their right to buy and sell. But uh, can look at it through two prisms. One is, yeah, you've built the value, you need to diversify, we do the same in your position whereas others go, is there something wrong? Are they bailing? And, you know, most probably that second one is usually not the truth. It's purely for diversification. But, you know, I can't speak for everybody. Of course. Uh, and for those that want to do more research on this topic, the 10B51 plans is what Sam's referring to in, in the US because it does feel as though Australia will be a, a little brother. We're, we're trying to foster wonderful technology companies in this era and yet most of them will be founder-led. And unfortunately, they'll end up listing on the NASDAQ or the, or the NICE and the ASX will be left behind. Yeah, look, I hope not. And you, know, you see in the paper more and more companies listing here. But certainly, um, sale of shares by directors or founders is, is certainly something that I think people should look at. And I believe there has been some active conversation around it. Can you talk to the role of the board over time and how they have supported the growth journey of the business to my mind it feels as though they really have been hand in glove with you in growing this business look we were very very lucky as i mentioned you know we were able to get the services of mel ward when we listed and most probably we were punching above our weight when it came to a chairman because we were such a small company but mel was the sort of guy that when he said he would do something you got a hundred percent attention and peter johnson and philip molyneux our other directors at the time so was pretty hands-on and they help guide a lot of the what the market expects and governance so that's how you know we we learned at their heels as uh, you know in all those areas I think uh, our board shrunk as I said in that 2006-2007 where we sort of fell off the radar a bit and it was really all hands on deck there were just two non-execs um, Anthony and myself and um, thankfully once we got out of that period that we've been able to build it and we now have um, a broader range of skills. The company is bigger, the markets we service are bigger, everybody contributes so they're not just figureheads on a board and we've been very lucky that way you know so people from years and years of experience, Peter and then you know to people who are coming up through the ranks you know they've had plenty of experience but different ones so Tony Glenning had a IT company he sold into Google for instance and worked more in venture capital Lee Farrell worked in drug trial industry and you know licensing and other bits and pieces we've had Dina Dina Schiff who's a, a lawyer and has worked in Telstra Ventures and, and a number of other companies and now recently Alice Williams who's done a lot of work in finance risk audit so different sets of skills but so far you know touch wood it's all working pretty well 
It's a, a great call out in terms of having diversity of thought around the table and, and the power in that. Maybe to wrap things up, there aren't many people in Australia that have had the longevity and success that you've had. So I'm, I am interested in maybe finishing with some bigger picture questions. What are the biggest changes to corporate Australia, for good or for worse, that you've seen in your time? I don't know so much about corporate Australia, but certainly in terms of being publicly listed, the governance, the disclosures, and, and look, I get why they're necessary in, in, in most cases, but you know, it is becoming a very significant part of a board's work that uh, I think is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I think um, not so much in our industry because, you know, we're controlled by quality assurance bodies like, you know, the TGA, the CE and the FDA. But, you know, I think for some industries, they may have been over-regulated. We're lucky we're not. And as I said, most of our regulation is all around quality assurance and fit-for-purpose type things. So they're the main things that I see. But um, other than that, the transition has not been as great for us as maybe some of the other industries where a lot more regulation has come in. And what about, as a last question, the legacy that you personally and, and you hope ProMedicus leaves, not just on the industry but on the world more largely? Look, I think there are a few things. One, you start something and if you stick at it and you have a good idea, you can get there. Um, not everybody has to be an overnight sensation and I'm sure the ones that are deemed to be overnight, usually there's a lot more history behind them. Maybe not our 40 years, but still a lot more. The other thing is, as I often tell my family, we, we actually do good. It's not just about doing good for our shareholders and enabling them to do things, but clearly... We move the needle when it comes to clinical capability and clinical outcome, and the more we can do that as a group, the more our legacy will continue on, and and we're very proud of of being able to do that and hope to do even more of it in the future. Sam, I've been lucky enough to interview some fantastic people over the years, but I think this takes the cake. I've absolutely loved this. Thank you so much for your time. Wish you and ProMedicus every success. I'll be cheering you on. Thanks very much, and thanks for the opportunity. (laughs) 